What up? <laughs> Fine, Lauren. Welcome to the second episode of the Oxford Comment, brought to you from the New York offices of Oxford University Press. I'm Michelle. <laughs> and I'm Lauren. Would you pull yourself together? You started the podcast by saying, what up? <laughs> well, I'm a geek. And honestly, Lauren, so are you. Uh, truth. We work in publishing. We talk about books all day. While others are reading TMZ. We're reading Galley Cat or obsessing about the new Gary Steingart book trailer. And then after work, we go to literary pub crawls. On Sunday afternoons, we go to book club. And let's not pretend that in any free time we have, we're not working on our novels. And you know what is super geeky? Tell me. Doing a podcast about geeks. Like we're doing right now. Talk about meta. So without further ado, we bring you Jesse Scheidlauer, editor-at-large of the Oxford English Dictionary, with the history of the word geek. Many people think that the original meaning of geek refers to a carnival performer who does disgusting things like biting the heads off chickens. And while this is certainly a real sense of it that goes back to the early 20th century, it's not the original. Uh, Originally, it's just a U.S. slang term meaning a foolish or offensive or worthless person. Uh, The more positive sense, referring to specifically to someone who's especially into computers or related technology, uh, we first know of in the early 1980s uh, and with positive uses from then on. Uh, As a verb, geek goes back to the 1930s where it was uh, found in underworld slang. Damon Runyon uses it among others and the sense referring to working as a geek that is as as a carnival performer uh, goes back to the 1940s and the more modern sense is like to geek out, to do something uh, geeky in the sense of an overly studious person. Uh, These are more recent coming from the 1980s or 1990s. Jesse's pretty great. He actually recorded that segment for us uh, while wearing a bow tie and bubblebee suspenders. Um, Jesse's actually done a really geeky thing, and he's written a book about all uses of the F word. It's called The F Word. So if any of you have mothers or grandparents with birthdays coming up, we encourage you to run out and get a copy. Game time. Truth or dare? Truth? Who is your ultimate geek crush? Oh, easy. Rivers Cuomo. He's the lead singer of Weezer. He's got those glasses. How about you? Um, Anthony Michael Hall, 84 and 85. That's the weirdest thing you've ever said to me. Go watch 16 Candles. All right. Well, I have my own confession, I suppose. Um, I have always wanted to date a Jeopardy champion. Uh, Lauren, see that guy in the corner waiting to be interviewed? He actually won Jeopardy. Oh, my God. Hi, I'm Lauren. Lauren, do you want to read his official Jeopardy bio card? Yes. Okay. Matt Keperletti, an advertising account supervisor from Westwood, New Jersey. Good job. That was so much fun. Matt, we brought you in today because you have the ultimate geek badge of honor. You are a Jeopardy champion. It's your three-year anniversary of the big win. How did you do it? My strategy. Um, First of all, uh, be aggressive but not over-anxious with the buzzer, because uh, the buzzer is kind of a finicky device. You really have to jam that buzzer. But if you're even a fraction of a second too early, it locks you out for half a second. You're essentially toast. So what questions, I mean, answers did you get? I received questions in my game I won from everything about The Simpsons to uh, children's lit books. I think I uh, might have won a grand on Beverly Cleary. Um, (laughs) I think I got uh, a question by knowing the author of The Wizard of Oz as well. And what did you get to take home? 
Uh, I have two wonderful mementos that they give every Jeopardy contestant. That's a picture with Alex, uh, displayed proudly in my living room. And probably the uh, holy grail of geekdom, the a Jeopardy tote bag. <laughs> do, you, do you carry it with you? Describe the tote bag. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's a, a black tote bag with uh, Jeopardy and silver letters. It's, I'm sure it's probably very similar to what PBS gives you for, for pledging. <laughs> so it's super cool for a guy of any age. It, it definitely draws some stares in the office. Um, and uh, it's probably not so popular with the females. But, uh, you know, I rock it anyway. Speaking of the ladies, has being a Jeopardy champion helped you get dates? I wouldn't say it's been wildly successful. <laughs> Although, uh, I will say, um, a friend of mine, uh, we used to date years ago, and uh, she's admitted to me that her subsequent boyfriends are kind of intimidated by the fact that she dated the guy who was on Jeopardy. Okay, so fill in the blank for me. If it weren't for Jeopardy... I'd have never gotten to tell Alex Trebek my favorite karaoke song. <laughs> and what are your favorite karaoke songs? Well, uh, in the interview, I think what I said was, um, I have a pretty wide range of styles. Um, anything from I Got You Under My Skin by Frank Sinatra to Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye to Here I Go Again by Whitesnake. <laughs> and what Alex said to that, he asked if I knew any Don Ho. He's, he's, a, he's a pretty funny guy. And I said, no, but I have a great collection of Hawaiian shirts. You know, it was definitely uh, something I never thought I would get to admit to Alex Trebek. Did he, did he hug you when you won? He did not. Are there rules about touching Trebek? <laughs> um... If there are, I wasn't going to test them. And I've got your number. So, Lauren, that's totally cool, right? OMG, he's so dreamy. Well, our next guest would agree that Matt would make a great mate. You you mean boyfriend? Um, no, they're they're evolutionary biologists, so mate, boyfriend, same thing. That's totally awkward. They're David Barish and Judith Lipton. These two are hardcore academics. They live about five miles from Microsoft, and they've been life partners, both professionally and otherwise, for longer than you and I have been alive. Kind of the perfect paradigm of geek love. They've collaborated in many books together, Focusing a lot on evolutionary biology and sexuality. Uh, Google tells me here that they wrote an entire book on the myth of monogamy. Yes. And this spring, they're actually publishing a book with us called Payback, which is all about aggression and revenge. Um, all right, let's, let's get started. So you guys have been together for, what, over 30 years, right? I began studying with David when I was a resident. One thing led to another, and we became partners both maritally and uh, academically. It, it's, been, it's been really interesting. Everything I know about human behavior, I think I can attribute to Judy. And I'm not sure about everything, but a lot that she knows about evolutionary biology, I think she can attribute to me. We sort of occupy a university of two. We're sort of like accessory hard drives for each other. And we've written six or seven books together, and it's hard to tell what even what sentence was written by... Judy or by me. Speaking as a couple, there's no doubt that the most attractive trait in other people is intelligence. What made our romance the shared books that we'd read and the songs that we knew and the songs that we learned together. That's our parrot in the background. We, here's something geeky. We have a goffin cockatoo. She may have her, her say in what she wants to comment on this as well. <laughs> what is uh, your parrot's name? Her name is Matilda. Cockatoos don't talk very much, but they dance. 
<laughs> okay, so maybe Matilda can help us with this one. Tell us all about the night you first met. He recited Robert Service's um, poem, The Cremation of Sam McGee. Um, from, from, <laughs> I can't remember from the context. Start to finish at a dinner party. Most people might have been turned off by yeah, that. Yeah, or you bored silly. I, I was intrigued. I would like to point out to our listeners right now that as she's speaking, the uh, the bird is hopping back and forth between their shoulders, and it's the cutest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Matilda wants to talk to you, too. She undoubtedly will. And, uh, David, what were some, quote-unquote, geeky things that attracted you to Judith? She used the word obtunded at one point. And I can't even remember the context. Uptunda, I never heard the word before, and it means to be somewhat sort of unconscious or unaware of what's going on. I think it was our words, or her words, that sort of seduced me. Really, um, you know, the, the brain is by far the most appealing erotic organ that another person possesses. But you implied in the email exchange we had earlier that geeks are winning out in the mating game because they are ideal partners later in life. Yeah, I, I think that's right. We have a lot, there's a lot of evolution that essentially whispers within us. And the bottom line for these promptings is essentially who would be an appropriate mate that would help me to produce offspring who would be as successful as possible. Even if one is not actually planning to have children consciously, um, I think there was a time when the ability to knock the, 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 the cave bear on the head, and, uh, et cetera, would be, uh, in fact, particularly important and contribute to one's evolutionary fitness. So these days, what traits are we looking for? These days, uh, I think there's a growing awareness, even somewhat conscious, that um, those traits are not necessarily where it's at and that it's more subtle having verbal fluency, having facility with some of our, our tools, an iPod or a computer, uh, not that different from a, a club or a blowgun. It's just that it's um, more recent. So wait, David, just, just a second ago, you said that even if we're not looking to start a family, we're still um, subconsciously attracted to people with traits right. we would find desirable in a mate. It's exactly what we're trying to say, that we think that sexual attraction is very much determined at an unconscious level by an unconscious question of would this particular person be good, um, a good partner to make babies with, to, to reproduce with, even, even if we're not planning to get married or have babies, even if we're looking at the person for a one-night stand or friends with benefits or it's a gay relationship, literally non-reproductive sex. So when it comes right down to it, we use old habits of how to evaluate people, even though times have changed and people can have sex for fun without making babies now. And it's going to take a very long time for genes to change that would make non-reproductive sex have a, um, um, a genetic component. Hey, you know what type of people have really crazy genes? People stuck in the 80s? What? No, superheroes. Superheroes can be geeky. Superman. Spider-Man. We could go on. But we won't. Because we don't know all that much about heroes. But you know who does? Psychologists Scott Allison and Al Gothels of the University of Richmond. They are experts on heroes. I didn't know there could be such a thing. Well, they wrote a book called 
Heroes, all about the human psyche and explain why we need heroes, both real and fictional. They are quite a dynamic duo, if I do say so myself. Uh, thanks for being here, guys. Tell us, when did we first see the rise of the heroic geek? Sherlock Holmes was modeled after an Edgar Allan Poe character, a detective, C. Auguste Dupin. He is, a, like Holmes, is, is a very typical geek, extremely intelligent, but sort of introverted and awkward. But he is admired and heroic because he's able to use his geekiness in terms of his very high intelligence to do good things. So when did the geek archetype appear in film for the first time? Really, what you have happening in the 1970s and 80s is the rise of the underdog story. And I think the geek is a, a form of an underdog, and we all have a place in our hearts for, for people who are at a disadvantage, people who are far less than perfect, people who are lovable losers with the karate kid. Spider-Man or the 1983 movie War Games, Matthew Broderick's character, and that's an interestingly typical geek, it seems to me. He's a computer geek in that movie. Um, but I think we are ambivalent about intelligence and about geeks, and in order to be acceptable, they have to have some other kind of redeeming social value. Uh, and in that case, he's lovable. He's very attractive young man. But today, the redeeming social quality seems to be a sense of humor. We forgive the awkwardness of these looking for love average Joe types because they're funny. Characters played by actors like Seth Rogen, Jonah Hill, Michael Sarah. What's almost funny about that, though, is now there's this wave of people who are Michael Sarah haters because he, the actor, has become so popular. So now they no longer appreciate that, you know, soft, sweet, awkward side of him. Susan Boyle, does she qualify as a geek? She definitely qualifies as an underdog. Definitely does not have the classic look of a hero. Um, and people tried to knock her off her pedestal, too. When she became, when she rocketed to fame, people suddenly started criticizing her change of appearance, her looks. She was lovably frumpy. I won't lie. I cried when I saw that. <laughs> A lot of people yeah, did. She, she can really sing. We love an underdog, and her voice uh, completely betrayed her appearance, and that's what we love about geeks. Well, guys, thank you so much. And we encourage everybody to check out Scott and Al's blog at blog.richmond.edu slash heroes. Lauren, are you okay? Susan Boyle just has such a beautiful voice. While Lauren's pulling herself together, I'd like to thank all of our guests and, of course, the Ben Daniels Band, who you're listening to right now. You can check them out at bendanielsband.com. And if you'd like to score a date with a real-life Jeopardy! champion, you can call 917. Don't you dare. I'm going to call him. Whoa. Uh, remember, between podcasts, you can keep up with us on Twitter. OUP blog USA or at blog.oup.com where as always there will be archived episodes of the Oxford comment as well as further information about everything we've discussed and don't forget you can subscribe on iTunes please do we leave you with one last geek treat last weekend I attended one of Gelf magazine's geeking out events it's like a party with drinks and music but with learning they bring in really smart panelists and I got the chance to talk to a few we are here at Geeking Out, the anatomy of the Big Apple, uh, and it's basically about geeks for urban planning and transportation. You learn, and you have a good time. I'm 
Sharon Zukin. I'm the author of Naked City. And my day job is I teach sociology at the City University of New York. I don't really do math. I'm a very soft core geek, but I really like the people who are here because they are so warm-hearted. My name is Benjamin Kabat. I run a subway blog, Second Avenue Sagas. I try to keep everybody informed as to what the policies are, what the politics are, what's going on, what we can do to make the subway system better. I'd say I'm a New York City geek, where I really like the subways, and I'm also a huge Yankee fan. Charles Komenoff, I'm a policy analyst, and uh, my wife says that I make numbers speak. I'm, I've been documenting how much everybody else in the city suffers in terms of extra uh, travel delays because one person decides to drive a car into and then back out of the heart of the city. Uh, I call it time pollution. Um, it's an easy concept, but putting a price tag on it takes geek power. You've got to develop empirically based equations. Um, you know, there's lots of steps. My name is Vincent Valk, and just generally speaking, it's important to geek out because what are you going to do if you're not interested in stuff? You really have to jam that buzzer.